listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We've been in a series called The Lord of the Harvest, and it essentially has been, I guess if you wanted to cut to it, my first and only so far in 11 months series on tithing and giving. But it hasn't been just, I think, a typical sort of tithing and giving service. It, it goes bigger than that, and it's much larger than that, and frankly, I think, much deeper than that. If, if, really, if, if the Lord really is the Lord of the harvest, in other words, if, if all we have are our spouses, our kids, our, our money, our jobs, our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our hopes, our dreams, if all that we have is somehow gifted to us, by the Lord. He plants them. We may, yes, we may water them. We may nurture them through our faithfulness, through obedience, through trust. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know that, that what we have in our lives, or at least we should know that everything we have in our lives, no matter how hard we've, quote, worked for it, no matter how good we think we've been, it's a gift. It's a gift. And we've been discussing and engaging in this conversation as to what it may mean to honor the one who blesses us. Because I wonder sometimes if we really understand, first off, that we have been truly blessed. We throw that word around, bless you when you sneeze, and I've been blessed, blessed by the best. And I wonder sometimes if we fail to remember what it really means to have been blessed. Because if there is a blessing, there must be a blessed sir. So we've been talking about this together. And so now we take a slightly different turn. It still has everything to do with the Lord of the harvest and honoring the one who blesses us. But it gets even deeper now. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Romans chapter 12, that will be our primary text today. Verse 1, he said this. He said, Therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. John Winthrop was a wealthy English Puritan lawyer one of the leading figures of the founding the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, which was the first major settlement in the New England. He was governor of 12 of these colonies and was a obviously fairly wealthy man, but he was a deeply religious man. and He was very fond of a particular verse in Scripture that pro- pro- propelled him into this place of, of, of ministry in a sense. Though he was lawyer by vocation, he wrote this book called A Model of Christian Charity. And he... His, his values and ethics and, and sort of his convictions gave great shape to his day. The verse that he was very fond of was where Jesus said, let your light shine. And then later said, a city on a hill should not be hidden and cannot be hidden. I think for Winthrop, what that meant was by the way we live our lives, something should look different. To those who see us. Well, Cotton Mather, who wrote a church history book of New England in the 1700s, he told a story about John Winthrop, and I believe it's true. And here's the story In the middle of winter, Boston was low on fuel, and a man came to the governor 
Winthrop, complaining that a needy person was stealing from his woodpile. So Winthrop mustered the appropriate outrage and requested that the thief come see him, presumably for punishment. According to Mather, Winthrop began to tell the man the following, Friend, it is a severe winter, and I doubt you are but adequately provided for wood. Wherefore, where, what I have, wherefore, I would have you supply yourself at my woodpile till this cold season is over. Winthrop looks at this thief and he says, I know you do not have what it takes to stay warm. So I'll tell you what, I'll provide what you lack. Come and take from my pile as much as you want. And so then Winthrop, Winthrop looked at all of his friends and joyfully then asked them, did I successfully cure this man of his desire to steal? I think that story illustrates the gospel. It illustrates this good news. It illustrates what Paul is trying to say when he says, Therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God, See, I think it illustrates this because what we understand about Jesus is that all had sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. And so what we really deserve, what we really deserve, what we completely deserve is judgment. We could not live up to the Ten Commandments. We could not live up to the law of God. We could not live the way He's called us to live. He's holy in His character. He's righteous in His character. And this is he's holy and righteous. We couldn't live up to his standard. We couldn't keep his law perfectly. We couldn't think the thoughts we should have always thought. We couldn't love our neighbor the way we should love our neighbor. We can't love our spouse the way we know we should love our spouse. Our kids the way we should know our love our kids. We can't work with the kind of work ethic we know we should have. We cannot be. We cannot do the things we know we should do, and we never could, and it never has happened. And so, what we really deserved from God was nothing short of judgment. Nothing short of punishment. But yet he had mercy. He withheld what it was we deserve to receive from Jesus. But he didn't just stop there. He didn't just leave us on our own. Or leave us in this perpetual state of hopelessness. He did something even, even greater than that maybe, you might say. He did for us what we could never do. See, Jesus did think every thought he should have. He did love his neighbor the way he should have. He did obey God the way he should have. He did follow God with everything that he was. Paul would say it this way. For while we were helpless, at the appropriate time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled or brought back into relationship with God, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have received this bringing back, this reconciliation through him. In other words, Paul is just trying to say that, that not only did God withhold what we should have 
received in his mercy and out of his love, but he did for us what we could never do for ourselves called grace. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. And when he cried out that it is finished on the cross, he literally meant it. He meant that everything that it would take to make humanity right with God, he did. He performed. And then Paul in Romans 5, he's trying to help us understand that, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right. That's why it's called grace. That's why it is God doing for us. We can't think the right thoughts, so we trust his thoughts. We can't do the right actions, so we trust his actions. We can't make ourselves righteous before God. We can't become acceptable before God based on our own efforts. We, we, we're incapable. And so we're not saved through our life. We're saved through his life. And thank God, by his mercy and grace, we didn't have to die his death because he took our place. And not only are we saved, but we're also empowered through the resurrection because now we have the power to live the life that at least God's called us to live, not to make ourselves perfect. We're made perfect by what Jesus has done. And here's the struggle, and I get it. People really struggle with that last statement. We really struggle with grace because it's so scandalous. It has no caveats or qualifications in our minds, or at least when we hear it like that. And then we somehow think that grace means license. Grace needs no qualification. It is that scandalous. It is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Period. And anything other than that isn't gospel. Because then that means somehow in my own flesh, I can make myself right with God. And then we think, well, what about obedience? What about, what about faithfulness? What about life lived for God? Well, that's, that's exactly Paul's point. He says, Romans 12, 1, therefore. See, Paul spends the first 11 chapters trying to help them understand the Roman Christians, this idea of grace and mercy, this idea that there is nothing, nothing we could do. Without Jesus, we were utterly helpless. And he unpacks this in great detail. He doesn't get into the caveats and make him feel good and, and, and start throwing out practical rules at this point. He's just trying to help him see. And so he says, therefore, he takes a turn. And he says, therefore, by the mercies of God. Therefore, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you, because of the mercy of God in your life, I plead with you to present your lives as a living sacrifice to God. I plead with you because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has been, has been given because of you, the sin and the weight of the world, on himself. I beg you by the mercies of God, not by your guilt, not by your desire to earn yourself into some sort of heavenly standing with God. I beg you by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, what he's done for you, what he's withheld for you in Jesus, I beg you by the mercies of God, let that be what motivates you. Let that be what catapults you. Let that be what causes you, stirs you, motivates you to give your life away to God. It's a living sacrifice. See, because the gospel tells us that there was no price that God would not pay to have us back. No price. No price too high. 
But then the gospel received then asks us the question, what price am I willing to pay so that other people will know the price that God paid in Jesus? See, because the gospel, when understood, gives birth to something completely different in my life. The good news of the kingdom of God, when I understand what it is God has done in Jesus Christ, in my life, for me, in, in this world, in humanity, and I really do grapple with it, and I really do begin to understand it. You know, you could, you could hear sermons that could guilt you into obedience, but it won't last. You could hear sermons that could make you move towards fear of a holy God, towards obedience and fear of condemnation and going to hell, but it, but it won't last. You could hear sermons about how God will bless you if you just do this, and God will bless you if you do that, but it won't last. But when you understand, and you begin to grapple and you begin to really realize that what Jesus has done is absolutely enough and it is the only thing that is enough to ever make us right before God and ever put us in a relationship with God and give us the power to live any kind of life we were created to live. When we really understand that, it changes how we live. See, there was this woman. She was a prostitute. And she'd heard about this Jesus. She heard that he loved prostitutes. But in the right way. And she hears he's at this religious man's house who, by the way, did not understand grace and mercy. And she doesn't knock on his door. And she doesn't send him a messenger to see if she can come in. When she hears Jesus is there, she takes social protocol and, and all kinds of decorum. She throws it to the side and she busts into this man's house. And she falls at the feet of Jesus, and with her tears, she washes his feet. And with her long hair, as she lets it down, she dries his feet with her hair. And then with her expensive perfume, which was pivotal to her profession, she anoints his feet. And Jesus says this. After he gives a parable to the religious man, he says, He who's been forgiven much, loves much. He who's been forgiven little, loves little. And I think what Jesus is not saying is, is he's not saying, hey, hey, the one who's gone out and lived the most sort of hellish kind of life, the one who's just lived for themselves and, and committed the biggest sins, well, when that brother or that sister gets forgiven, well, they're going to love me like crazy. Versus the person who, you know, was forgiven a little because they didn't live that hard. They won't love me nearly as much. That's not what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is this. I think he's saying that when we understand the depth and depravity and, and utter hopelessness of our deadness outside of God and our sinful state and the darkness that comes as a result of that life, and then we understand the contrast, the beauty and the breadth and the light and the gravity of grace, and you see that clearly through a cross-shaped lens in an empty tomb. You will love me so much because you will know what I've done. See that Paul would say it this way. He would say, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He would say by the mercies of God. The gospel there is no price God would not pay to bring us back to himself. The question for us every day of our lives is what price are we willing to pay so that others will know the beauty of that price?
Are we willing to pay a price with our time? Are we willing to to pay a price with our finances? Are we willing to pay a price with our priorities? Are we willing to pay a price with our money, our comfort even? Because Paul would say, I urge you to present your bodies, your lives, your lifestyle, all that you think, say, do, your lives, everything. I urge you, I beg you to present your lives as a living sacrifice. See, in our culture, we understand sacrifice. We understand at least a one particular kind of moment of sacrifice. We understand the event of sacrifice. Sometimes I wonder if we understand, if I understand living sacrifice. It's because I think what Paul is saying is he's saying, when you look at the mercy of God on your life, and you look at the mercies of God in this world, and you look at all that God could have done, but you look at what he did do in Jesus, shouldn't you be moved? He says, I, I beg you, shouldn't you be moved to take your time and your job and your money and your hope and your dreams and your life and just lay it down on the altar of God, let go what's in your hand, and just lay it down on the altar of God and say, God, this is my life. This is all that I am, and I lay it on your altar. Because, see, God, I realized when I picked up my life from your altar and I was carrying it around in my own hands, it was, it was leading me to a life of separation of you. But then I pick it up and, and I lay it down for you, God, now. I lay it down for you. And it's a living sacrifice. It's not an event. It's not a church service. It's not a good deed. It's a posture of the heart. It's a lifestyle. As a matter of fact, Paul would say that this is your spiritual act of latreo. This is your reasonable act of worship. See, now... That messes with my worship. So you can't lay your life down on the altar of God for his glory and it not be worship. So now worship is not just something we do. It's not a Sunday event. It's not five acts that we participate in on a weekly basis. It's not a praise song that we love. It's not a hallelujah chorus. It's not a physical body posture at any given moment. It's not an amount that we put in a plate. It's not the bread and the wine that we drink. That is not the sum total of worship. Are they acts of worship? Of course they are. But the sum total, the most supreme, the greatest worship, frankly the only worship that the holy God of heaven and earth will accept in Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of worship, a life that understands it is lived with and in and for the God of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. But yet Christians come to church to worship. And you see on signs, enter to worship and leave to serve. And that's just poor theology. You should enter to worship and leave to worship. And out of your worship flows love of neighbor. Out of your worship flows living sacrifice. It changes everything. Allison's been on this retreat all weekend. When I think of living sacrifice and life of worship, I think I'm always Allison's husband. You know, whether Allison's present or not, I'm still her husband. Whether she's literally in the room or she's at a retreat, I'm still her husband. I'm not, I'm not looking at women. I'm not flirting at women. I, I make decisions. I don't go out and just buy a new car when she's gone because I'm always her husband. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm not just thinking about, my, I'm always her husband. So every decision I make impacts her life, whether she's present with me or not. Right? The way I treat you impacts her life, whether she's present with me or not. The way I feed my son impacts her life when she's not present. Friday night, me and my little boy, we left our own devices for dinner. And daddy of the year here, we had a phenomenal dinner. All right, I got to tell you. All right, we had hot dogs, all right, meatballs, leftover chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A, green beans, and potato chips. And we ate them on the couch. It was awesome. It was so great. Ian, if Ian could have talked, he would have said, Father, Father. He would have thought I was the best dad in the world. It was, just, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. But I realized after my stomach was hurting that we missed his mom. I realized that my, my decisions have consequences. Even when she's not around. I'm always Allison's husband. You're always a worshiper if you present your body as a living sacrifice before God. Worship isn't a one single act. It is a living act of ultimately laying your life down. But you'll never do that. I'll never do that if I'm not willing to pay a price. If I'm not willing to sacrifice. If I'm not willing to give of my time, of my money, of my resources, of my heart, of my mind, of my affections. I will never be able to do that if something else doesn't change inside of me. See, because a life of worship is lived when I trust God for his word. When I'm willing to obey him. And when I'm willing to join him in his mission. See, that's a life of worship. It's a life of grace. It's funny, because as Christians, we really wrestle with this. And I remember being at this retreat, and on one side of the room was, was a group of men, it was a men's retreat, who really believed that there was nothing a person could ever do to, to lose their salvation. They believed that, that once a person was saved, they were always saved no matter what they could ever do. And, and they were hotly debating and defending that with, with biblical text. People have been believing this for 2,000 years. And then on the other side, the other side in this argument that was going on were this group of men who believed that you could, that you could indeed take the grace of God and throw it down and, and live the life you want to live and therefore turn away from God and salvation and walk away from God completely. And so, you know, again, for 2,000 years, people have believed that, and, and people much smarter than us on, on both sides. And this has been a debate that's been going on literally for 2,000 years, and yet somehow in our presumption, we think we can come up with the final solution. But nonetheless, they come to me because I'm the preacher, and they say, hey, preach, why don't you come and solve this problem for us? Okay. Now, I enjoy a good theological debate. I enjoy it a lot. I enjoy it. One in love. I don't have time to get my... Hair is all standing up. I don't have much hair left, and I really don't want to get my heart racing, but I enjoy those kind of conversations. But it occurred to me what was going on. So I looked at this camp. I said, guys, do you love Jesus? Really love Jesus. Yeah, love Jesus. 
All right, all right. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I looked at this guy and said, do you guys love Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. Do you understand what Jesus has done? Yeah, yeah. And these guys were angry at each other. Okay, this is a retreat where we're supposed to come together. That's not happening. And so I look at these guys and they give me the same answer. I said, well, then last I checked, I think Jesus said something about this debate. He said, if you love me, you keep my commands. We can debate the theology all day, but at the end of the day, there's a bigger ethic in play. For the child of God, the idea of not following God and His law and His way of life through grace isn't an option. I obey Jesus because I love Jesus and believe Jesus. But what we do is we spend time arguing the other details and miss the point. And that causes us to get worship wrong. And it causes us to get giving wrong. It causes us to get sacrifice wrong. And then that causes us just to get the gospel wrong. So Paul says, Brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and perfect will of God. So now Paul turns and he says, so do not be conformed to this age. Then, then, then you, since you know the mercy of God in your life, and you've laid your life down on the altar of God as your supreme spiritual act of worship, you are a follower of Jesus who worships God with your life and you're a living sacrifice, then, then i got to tell you, don't conform to the world then. You really can't. What the world sees as valuable and and healthy and right and beautiful and just, you you can't live that way anymore then. What everybody else is doing and what culture holds is the most valuable and important thing, you you can't, you, you don't conform to that. You don't shape your life around that anymore. Because you're shaping your life around the one to whom you've given your life to in worship. The one for whom you you sacrifice for. The one above all things who is sacrificed for you. And you conform to his way. So don't be conformed to the patterns of this age, to the ethics and values, to a world that doesn't worship God. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we get caught up in transformation. So we begin to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we, we start to try and transform ourselves and we try to make ourselves good and right and holy and we call it the freedom of choice. You choose and we call it these, these, these things to sort of placate really the gospel and, and so what we do is, is we tell young people, we tell young people, like I told them first service, now do not live the way the world lives and what we fail to give them is the very the very essence of why they shouldn't live the way the world lives. What we fail to give them in our commands to them is is the very reason for not living the way the world lives. What we fail to give them is the motivation to not live the way the world lives. Paul gives it. He says, by the mercies of God. See, transformation happens. Not through my own effort. You're not going to get rid of every computer and lock yourself in a room, guys, and be free of the lust problem. You're not going to take a simple lifestyle and pare it all down and live in basically an action building in some far desert country and try to simplify your life and get rid of the greed problem. 
You're not going to get rid of that friend that gets on your last nerve and get rid of the patience problem. You're not going to transform yourself. He says transformation begins by a renewed mind. It begins there. You've got to see the world differently. Think differently. See, the word renewal in the scripture literally means renovation. It literally means allow God to come in and renovate your mind. Like a literal renovation of your house. Allow Him to remove the clutter and remove the things that, that do not look the way you want it to look. Allow Him to do that. Allow Him to do that. How do we allow Him to do that? Well, we listen to the Word. We listen to the Word and we begin to see the world the way He sees it. We hear the things the way He wants us to hear it. And when we do, it starts to change the way we see the world. And if you struggle to believe that, I have a question for you. Did you see the world differently after 9-11 when you were on a plane? Do you see humanity different? It was because an event affected the way you thought about life and the world. And the way you thought affected how you acted and responded. See, I was raised in South Georgia, and it was, you know, it was prime and proper to not like people of a different color. And then I began to hear God. And I heard God say, I created all men in my image. And Christ died for all of them. And that began to change the way I thought about people of color and people in the world. And then that began to change the way I acted to them and acted for them. And I started getting rid of the they and us idea. And before I knew it, when I looked at the world that put people in camps, this color here and this color there and this person here and this person there, as a kingdom of God citizen, as a worshiper of the living God, I began to realize that I have no business in one camp. See, renewed mind changed the way I acted towards my neighbor. Transformation happens when we allow God to renew our mind. We allow God to renew our mind when we listen to what God holds as valuable, meaningful, purposeful. When we allow the word to speak. That affects how we live. Affects how we give. Affects how we love. That's worship. The world says money can buy you satisfaction and peace. The word says satisfaction and peace comes from the Holy Spirit within you. The world says that you should pursue happiness above all things. The Word says you should pursue holiness above all things. The world says you have what you have because you worked for it. You own it. You're entitled to it. It's yours. The Word says God gave it to you. Be willing to give it away. But that's a living sacrifice. So Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, I beg you, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God, I beg you to present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renovation of your mind, so you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God. If we're going to be a church that gives of our tithes and our offerings and beyond, if we're going to be a church that loves, if we're going to be a church that is joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives, we have to be a church full 
of worshipers.